Um, it's actually been a while since we were in Matthew. Last time we were here, we finished out Matthew chapter 9, and actually Matthew chapter 10, which we're starting this morning, it uh, flows naturally from Matthew chapter 9, and it's because of those two verses that Pastor Kevin read earlier. And I would just direct your attention to those verses again. Chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then on the heels of that comes Matthew chapter 10 and the commissioning of the apostles and then Jesus sending them out on their first mission. So really what we have here is uh, Jesus playing a role in answering this prayer and of course the prayer itself being answered initially at least with the sending out of, of the twelve. And this marks a, a change, a transition in Matthew's gospel account because really the disciples so far have been mainly in the background. We've, we've been introduced to five of them uh, in Matthew chapter 4. That was uh, Peter and Andrew and then James and John and then Matthew himself, the tax collector in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, and then all of a sudden here, there's 12. And so what has been happening is Jesus has been busy uh, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, making, calling disciples to himself. And now that, that uh, gospel-making work is coming to a head as he transitions his disciples to the office of apostle and sends them out. And from now on, the apostles are going to take a more prominent role in the, the narrative of the gospel. So this is a bit of a transition. So let's just dive right in. And uh, the first four verses here is the commissioning of the 12 apostles. So if the theme of this section is the 12 apostles, then verses 1 through 4 is their, their commissioning. So notice verse 1. And he called to him, Jesus, of course, his 12 disciples. And that's uh, kind of abrupt because we had been introduced to, to five disciples by name. Now there's 12. And the number 12 is significant, of course, because it corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. And this is a signal, the fact that there's 12 disciples and then 12 apostles. It's, it's a signal that Jesus's mission is rooted in the Old Testament, it's related to ancient Israel, but it's also a new thing. This is something new. So it's a continuation, but it's new. 
In fact, it's a fulfillment of what the Old Testament itself was anticipating with the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of the new and better covenant and uh, a, um, a new covenant community. In fact, that's what Jesus is doing here with the disciples. He's laying the foundation for a new covenant community. And then these are his disciples. Remember that the word disciples means uh, learners, followers. And Jesus' disciples have been with him the whole time, but they've been in the background observing and learning. But now we're going to read about Jesus giving these disciples uh, authority to carry on the ministry that he had been performing. So we see that in the next uh, part of verse 1. So he calls to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. This is very specific. This is specific delineated authority given to 12 specific men. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So this is extraordinary authority from Jesus. And it was necessary for the extraordinary office to which he was calling these 12 men. And that office is the office of apostle. And we see that in the beginning of verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles. So you notice that switch. Jesus calls to himself his 12 disciples. Then he says, without warning, without transition, the names of the 12 apostles are these. So the idea is these 12 guys, these 12 disciples, he's given special authority to, to do the work that he was doing, to continue that work, to, to multiply that work. And now they're called apostles. They're the same men. But new authority and a new office. And that word apostles or um, apostle singular, it's a transliteration of the word apostolos. And it simply means um, sent ones or commissioned representatives. And that's true about all believers, by the way. All believers are representatives of Christ because we have Christ dwelling within us through the Holy Spirit. We bear his name and we do represent him in this world, but we are not all apostles in the proper sense of the word because we've not all been given this kind of authority to represent him. The apostles represent Jesus in an official capacity. They had the authority to um, proclaim truth in Jesus' name, to actually give new revelation, to give direction and instruction to this new covenant community of 
of believers. No other Christians have that authority. You and I do not have the authority to write the epistle of Kevin to the churches in Ridgecrest or something or other. People can listen to what we have to say or not. Uh, and as far as what we say is biblical and follows the writings of the apostles, then sure, fine. People should listen. But our words have no authority unlike the apostles because Christ gave them that authority. Uh, Craig Keener in the IVP Bible Background Commentary wrote this, um, a sent one, an, an apostolos, acted on the full authority of the sender to the extent that he accurately represented the sender's mission. And they would be, the apostles would be instrumental in multiplying Jesus' mission. And then, for the sake of clarity, Matthew names these men whom he had called to be apostles. Verses 2 through 4 is this list. And let's just go through them quickly. First of all, there's, there's Simon, who is called Peter. Simon was his, um, his given name. And Peter was how Jesus changed his name. Remember, it means rock, Peter or Cephas. And Peter was part of Jesus' inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, John, and, and Andrew. And uh, Peter is going, uh, going to end up being a leader among leaders. And then there's Andrew, his brother. And uh, um, Andrew is actually the Greek word for manliness. And Andrew shared a house with Peter in Bethsaida. And they were both fishermen, as several other of the disciples were. And Jesus called Andrew to be his disciple in Matthew 4, 18, at, um, around the same time as Peter. And uh, Andrew has the distinction of being the first known disciple of John the Baptist, who became a follower of Jesus. And you can read about that in John 1 and verse 40. Matthew mentions um, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So James and John were brothers, or sons of Zebedee. They were also called sons of thunder, probably to go along with their personalities. They were also fishermen. They were called to follow Christ in Matthew chapter 4, verses 21 through 22. And uh, this James, the brother of the Apostle John, was executed by Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12. And we don't know anything else, haven't heard anything about him uh, beyond that. Uh, and this, this James is distinct from the James who's the brother of the Lord, who was the leader in the Jerusalem church. And then he wrote the epistle of James, the brother of the Lord, not this James. And then John was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
He was the human author of the Gospel of John, and then the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation. And depending on your view of the chronology of the New Testament books, um, he may have been the last surviving apostle as he was banished to the island of Patmos and uh, apparently died of old age there. So that's James and John, the brothers of Zebedee. Then there's Philip. He's one of Jesus's earliest disciples, along with Peter and Andrew, not mentioned by Matthew before this, also from Bethsaida, and not the same Philip as the Philip who's the deacon in the book of Acts. This is the apostle Philip. There's Bartholomew that Matthew mentions here, and he's probably the same person as Nathaniel, and that wasn't unusual, by the way, for individuals to have multiple names in the first century. So he's probably Nathaniel from Cana, and uh, Philip's companion in John chapter 1, verses 44 through 49. That's Bartholomew. There's Thomas. And sadly, he's famous because of his nickname, Doubting Thomas, in John chapter 20 and verse 25, um, the, after the resurrection, the disciples are gathered together, except Judas, of course, and the disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord, those who saw him. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Doubting Thomas. But don't forget, a week later, Jesus appears before them, including Thomas, physically. And uh, after being exposed to Jesus' wounds, Thomas answered Jesus, my Lord and my God. It's too bad Thomas isn't better well known for that. Then Matthew mentions himself, Matthew the tax collector. His conversion is uh, given for us in chapter 9 and verse 9. And of course, he's the author of this, of this gospel. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. So there's three James, Jameses. There's James, the brother of John. There's this James. And then James, who wrote the epistle of James, one of the Lord's brothers, and uh, he's literally called in Mark 15 and verse 40, James the small or James the young one, James the less, either because of his size or his age. Next, Matthew mentions Alphaeus, or I'm sorry, Thaddeus. And he's probably the same individual as Judas, son of James in Luke 6 and verse 16. There's another Simon, and this one is uh, the zealous one, Simon the Zealot. Uh, later on, as the, um, part, the political party of the Zealots takes rise, maybe he was among them. We don't know exactly. And then, saving the worst for last, the saddest for last, 
there's Judas Iscariot, and then Matthew specifies Judas who betrayed him. So one of the 12 would end up turning on Jesus, and then he would end up being replaced. And we read about that in Acts chapter 1, where Judas was replaced as, as an apostle by Matthias, Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. So those are the 12 apostles. Uh, and I believe that we're supposed to recognize and acknowledge it's these and no more. It's only those uh, specifically authorized and called by Jesus. We did mention Matthias. Uh, Saul of Tarsus would be saved. His name would be called, changed to Paul, and he would be called to be an apostle too. But there was a condition, there was a qualification that all of the apostles needed to share in Acts chapter 1, and it was that they needed to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Matthi the original 12 were, Matthias was apparently a witness of the resurrection, and so was Paul, because he had encountered the resurrected Jesus uh, on the road to Damascus. But that criteria cannot be met anymore, which is a hint that this is a one-time office, the office of apostle. So there, there they are. Then Matthew tells us about their first mission in verses 5 through 16. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So if you're familiar with the Great Commission, that is in force for us as believers, this is a hint that this is a pre-Great Commission mission. This is not the Great Commission. This is a, um, a specific mission with a specific limited scope given to these men, especially by Jesus because he specifically tells them to not go to the Gentiles. And we, on the other hand, are commanded to go to the Gentiles. The Great Commission says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, Jesus said, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our commission. Multinational, multicultural, global in its scope. Jews, Gentiles, males, females, slave, free, and everyone in between. But this mission was targeted to the Jews to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice verse 7. Here's the proclamation. Here's the message. 
and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the same message of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. And it was the same message of Jesus, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 7. And so Jesus gave them the same message to proclaim. It's the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. The, the kingdom that had been prophesied and anticipated throughout the Old Testament period for centuries that involved a king, the Messiah, who would rule with the authority of Jehovah himself. And he would save his people from their enemies, the greatest enemy being their sins. And that kingdom had arrived with the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there was more that they were supposed to do. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And we saw that earlier in verse uh, 1, that this was part of the extraordinary power or authority that Jesus had uh, given to the apostles. And here they were supposed to actually use that. And this was the same ministry that Jesus had embarked on. We uh, had read from Matthew chapter 9 earlier. Notice Matthew 9 and verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. It's a message that's validated by power. That's what was going on. If Jesus and the apostles and us, by extension, if all we do is preach a message, but then there's nothing to back it up in terms of mercy, in terms of good works, in terms of compassion, then our message becomes empty words. But if all we do is concentrate on the mercy and the compassion and good works, then we're no better than the UN or some government agency. That's not why Jesus came into the world. Jesus came into the world on a mission of salvation. And that mission is message-centric. It's the message of the gospel. And that message transforms people's lives. And that's why when we engage in good works and works of mercy and compassion, we're validating the message that we preach. And that's what Jesus commanded the apostles to do. But again, I want to emphasize here the extraordinariness of the apostles' office. They fulfilled an office that other Christians don't because other Christians aren't apostles. So I want to just read a few verses here from the New Testament 
to emphasize the point. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 12, there's a similar passage in Acts chapter 2 and verse 43. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. In the book of Acts, it doesn't say that all of the believers were going everywhere doing signs and wonders. It does say that wherever the believers went, they preached the gospel, but it was by the hands of the apostles that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. And then look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is from a future apostle, the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to what Paul says about his own apostleship and his gifts of performing signs and wonders. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, and he's speaking about his ministry among the, the church in Corinth. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Do, do you hear, hear that? The signs and wonders and mighty works that Paul performed among the believers in Corinth, they were signs to validate the fact that Paul was a true apostle. The signs went hand in hand with the apostleship. And then later on in the book of Hebrews, we're going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that the message of our salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And why was that important? That God would attest to the message of the apostles? Because how did we hear about the message of Jesus? We heard about Jesus through the apostles. Why should we give two hoops and a holler about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Peter, and Paul, and the rest? Because they're apostles. They personally represent Jesus himself. To receive the apostles is to receive Jesus. To reject the message of the apostles is to reject Jesus. And when we read 2 Corinthians 12, 12, or any of the writings of the Apostle Paul, for example, or Matthew chapter 10, for that matter. We receive these words not merely as the words of men, but as they are in truth the very word of God. That goes along with being an apostle. That's why it's important to emphasize 
the uniqueness of their office and that not everyone is an apostle and the office of the apostle does not continue today. You can still listen to the apostles and follow the apostles as you read the documents in the New Testament. But if somebody comes up to you and says, Hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm an apostle, turn the other direction. When, when I go down um, Dolphin to College Heights Boulevard, there's a, there's a church on the corner, and bless their hearts, I wish them well, um, but they call themselves, it's a long name, I don't even remember the whole name, but it's an apostolic church, and I know what they mean by that. Somewhere in the hierarchy, there's a living apostle. And I just want to say, no, there's not. There's no apostle in that church. There's no apostle in any denominational headquarters. There's no apostle, no apostle on the other end of the boob tube, I mean YouTube. The apostles were specifically delineated, named, and authorized and empowered by Jesus. So therefore, to the extent that we're committed to the New Testament scriptures and their authority, we are an apostolic church. All right, moving on. Back in Matthew chapter 10, we talked about uh, Matthew and James, uh, the son of Alphaeus. We talked about him and Thaddeus. Oh, lost my place, sorry. Uh, the message in verse 7, heal the sick. Okay, back to uh, verse 8, the second half. You received without paying, give without pay. God would provide for their needs through the generosity of the people. Um, I don't believe this is, a, this is an ongoing directive. Remember, this was a specific mission specific geographic boundaries. Um, I don't think that missionaries are to um, not have any mind or provision about how they're going to provide for themselves and their households. But there is a principle here that God provides, and he provides for their needs through the generosity of their people. So acquire no gold, acquire no gold nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff. And here's the reason for the laborer deserves his food. And so the unstated promise here is that as they go on their mission with practically nothing, God is going to bless their mission. And there will be people among the Jews, the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, who will believe the gospel of Jesus. They will believe that Jesus, who sent the apostles, is the Messiah. And they will then care for the needs of the apostles during their, their mission. Because the laborer deserves his food. And then moving, moving on, we're going to see in verses 11 through 14 that the apostles would encounter two types of receptions. 
There are going to be those who are worthy, those who receive their message, and those who did not receive their message. So let's read that. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. That doesn't mean somebody who deserves the grace of God. That's a contradiction. Being worthy means that a person is not just a Jew outwardly, but they're a Jew inwardly. They've received not just the outward circumcision of the flesh, but they have a circumcised heart. And therefore, when they hear about the Messiah, they're going to believe. They're going to be ready to receive Israel's Messiah. That's a worthy person. Someone who has the faith of Father Abraham. And then Jesus continues on, verse 12, As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. That sounds kind of harsh, but notice that Jesus doesn't say you're not supposed to engage in a terrorist attack. You're not supposed to call them a bunch of vulgar names. Basically, you're supposed to leave them to God. You've discharged your duty, your responsibility as my apostle. You've given them the message. They've rejected the message, move on. That's what Jesus is saying. But there is a consequence for those who reject the message. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Because to whom much is given, much will be required. And with more light, with more gospel knowledge, more exposure to the message of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, comes more accountability when that gospel is rejected. That's why as terrible as it was for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, you could read about their fate in Genesis chapters 18 and 19, God caused fire and brimstone to rain down from heaven. And no, that's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It literally happened. He destroyed those towns. That was terrible. But those who consciously, intentionally, in, in face of the light of the message of the gospel, reject Jesus and his message, their fate will be worse. That's what Jesus said. And then this mission that Jesus sent the apostles on would require extraordinary wisdom and discernment. So verse 16, and then we'll stop there. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
It's not a bed of roses. It's not, it's a small world. It is a fallen world that is enmity with God, doesn't want to have anything to do with God, doesn't want to have anything to do with his ways, doesn't want to have anything to do with his Messiah. And so, as the apostles representing Jesus would, would go out into the highways and byways, yes, even among the lost sheep of the house of Israel, they were not going to be welcomed with open arms. There would be opposition. There would be resistance. There would be persecution, which Jesus elaborates on in the following verses. But they would be as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, they needed to be wise. Wise as serpents. And remember the serpent in Genesis chapter 3? He was more cunning than any other creature that God had created. We need to be that way, but not in an evil way. Because we're also supposed to be innocent as doves. Wise as serpents, not gullible, not stupid, not ignorant, but, but wise and insightful and making appropriate plans and taking appropriate steps. And at the same time, innocent as doves, so keeping a good conscience before God and men. So the apostles and their mission. I do have some takeaways for you before we, we close. There's three takeaways, and all of these takeaways are basically based on this observation, that here we have 12 ordinary men called to an extraordinary office, the office of apostle, to propagate and preserve an extraordinary message. That's the, the three takeaways. So, 12 ordinary men, Christianity is for ordinary people. And the Apostle Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, where he said to the believers in Corinth, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And that was reflected in Jesus' selection of the apostles. Fishermen, a tax collector, 12 very ordinary men. They were mocked, they were ridiculed because they were so ordinary. They were uneducated men. But it was through these men, minus Judas, plus Matthias and Paul, 
But it was through the apostles that God turned the world upside down. And why is that? It's because of the nature of the message itself. And so back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul concludes that message by saying in verse 21, this is all so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's all about the glory of God. It's not about our glory. It's about the righteousness and holiness and majesty of God. It's not about any of those things with respect to us because we don't have them. If the apostles were these impressive characters, then the conclusion could be that their messages will be as impressive as I am and you might make it in. But instead, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. All of grace. All of God. Christianity is for ordinary people. And the second takeaway, uh, I'll repeat, is that the office of apostle was an extraordinary foundational calling. And I would just cite to you Ephesians 2 and verse 20, uh, that we are now being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The foundation has been laid. Ever since then, it is the building that is being built. And then thirdly, and finally, the Christian gospel is an extraordinary message. Remember, 12 ordinary men called to an extraordinary office to propagate and preserve an extraordinary message. We were talking about this this morning during the Sunday school. The world and world history are full of religions and systems that in some way, shape, or form are all about us climbing the stairway to heaven, us saving ourselves, or us deifying ourselves, becoming gods. Think about it. They're all about that. Christianity and Christianity alone has this message of it's not about you or anything that you could possibly do. Just give up. It's all about Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus lived and died and rose again in our behalf so that sinners like us might be redeemed. In Jesus is found the very righteousness of God that we receive as a free gift. And then whatever we do as believers, as followers of Jesus, that does not contribute to our, salva to our salvation. It's just the fruit of our salvation. But that is an extraordinary, unique message. And Paul wrote 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And why is it foolishness to those who are being saved? Because people want to think that they're good, they're good people. It is a hard pill to swallow that, wow, you're telling me that I am so evil and corrupt and depraved from the depths of my soul that there's absolutely nothing that I can do to contribute to my own salvation? Yes! That's exactly what I'm saying. That's what the Bible says. There is none righteous, no, not one. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before the Lord. What does the Lord command us to do? Not do better, but give up. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That is the message of Christianity. And that's the message that the apostles were called to preach. And if you're a believer, that's the message that you believed. That's why you're saved. And if you're not a believer, that's the message that we proclaim to you today. And the moment that you believe that gospel from your heart, the Bible says, you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these ordinary men who you called to an extraordinary work. We thank you, Lord, for their extraordinary Lord and Master, our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, the ultimate apostle. Because Jesus was sent by you. He's the sent one. You sent him into this world on his glorious mission of salvation. We are so thankful that Jesus came into this world Sinners to save, of whom we would all say, I am chief. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you would save sinners in our midst even today. And we pray, Lord, that you would save sinners here and in Ridgecrest and throughout California. And across our nation and around the world. We know, Lord, that no one deserves to be saved. It is true. And yet, you are the God of our salvation. You are the God of mercy. And you tell us that, there, that you are um, more glorified in one sinner who repents the 99 righteous ones who need no repentance. So save, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.